You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 126 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al Tate, A-L Tate, Alison Tate? <laughs> I go to to children's um, workshops and I tell them that A-L Tate is my secret, not very secret writing name and they yes. all think that's hilarious. <laughs> um, how am I? Okay, well, I'm actually pretty good. That's good. Which is a surprise because I have received the structural edit notes on my new project, which of course we're not, we can't talk about too much yet, but my new series, which is coming out. And whilst it was a structural edit and therefore shocking, um, it was not (laughs) as bad as I thought it was going to be. Why did you think it was going to be bad? Because I always think it's going to be bad. Okay. I just always assume it's going to be, you know, tear this thing apart and start again. Yeah. and it was definitely not that. So I, I'm good. taking that as a win all round, which is excellent. Yes. So I'm good. I'm really wow, good. Wow, fantastic. Hmm. Well, and you? Uh, uh, how am I? I? I don't know whether I'm coming or going. I don't know whether I'm Arthur or Martha. It's just been <laughs> a crazy couple of weeks. Honestly, like when you're so crazy that you resent the fact that you need to take out time to go to the bathroom, that's when you know you're oh, too mm. crazy. And I probably sound a little bit manic at the moment. because You, do. you are, clearly. <laughs> probably because I am. So oh. I've just got what are you so doing? many deadlines on that it's – that there's so many, it's almost a blur that I can't explain it to you. Like I've got a corporate writing gig. I've got a little video script writing gig. I've got a, um, a feature writing gig. I've oh. got, um, I just, you know, we're launching a new look of our website. It's just, the list is endless. Mm. And so it's, um, I need to probably take a deep breath. <laughs> yes, I think so. Because otherwise, we're going to sound like chipmunks if we're going to if we're both going to be talking at your speed. It's going to be like we're on fast forward. So let's okay. Take it I'll take a deep breath. Yep. All right. Ready? Okay. Just calm your calm yourself. Calm. calm yourself by reading us a review. How about All that? All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we do want to give a shout out to Samantha Dennison, artist, who mm. has left us a review on iTunes, and she's titled it "Not Just for Writers." Oh. Yes, and Samantha has said. I love this podcast. It has relevance and crossover for all creatives. I listen to it while painting and find that so much of the advice and information is applicable to my own situation as an artist. Alison and Valerie keep me thoroughly entertained and informed every week. It's like having my girlfriends right there with me cheering me on. Thank you so much, ladies. I can't wait for next week. 
Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much, Samantha. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for um, your kind words. And um, I love I lo- the fact that we're painting creatively with yes. Samantha as well because I was just having a bit of a joke on Twitter this week about the various chores that we attend on a yes. vicarious basis at any yes. given time. Somebody was vacuuming and yes. was listening to us while they vacuumed. But I'm loving the idea There's that dog we're... dog walking. People listen dog, to yes. us while dog yes. walking. Someone that had – we had a one recently where they were painting a room and that yes. was – yeah. And so this creative painting is – very nice. And someone who um, listens to us while making dinner. Yes. And and their and uh, their kids say, "Oh, you're listening to the lady talkers again." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's my favourite. Thank you we, so much, Samantha. Yes. If you do have thirty seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Now. Shall we move on to what's happening this week in the world of writing and publishing? I think we should do that. All right. I came across this link in Writer's Opt and uh, it's called The Main Factors That Stop Readers From Finishing Books. And I, I it, you know, came into my head to talk about this because I was actually talking to somebody else the other day about whether you abandon books or not. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there are some people who will push through no matter how hard or not, you know, inspiring a book is, especially mm-hmm. if it's from a uh, well-known writer, they yep. will push through to the bitter end Yes, and because they feel that that's what they need to do. Yes. And there are other people who will abandon books and I will freely admit that I am an abandoner so if it doesn't keep me going it doesn't matter how famous you are or what the critics say or how what your reputation is that precedes you I will abandon you if you don't hold my interest I'm I will say that. Yes, and so I also you, am a uh, well. I'm a reformed pusher through. I used to be a used person. You push through. I did. I used to be someone who felt that if I'd started a book, I needed to finish it, like, a, like I'd signed a contract. I don't know, why? Val. But you know what? Do you know what cured me of that? And I, it's almost I'm almost embarrassed to admit this because it's one of those books that everyone in the world tells me I should love. Um, the Great Gatsby. You're kidding. I, <laughs> oh my god. I know it's it's not even very big, and I I You're couldn't kidding. do it. I ended up throwing it against the wall, and I have attempted that book three or four times now, and I just oh. don't get it. You're kidding! I don't love it. I'm That's, sorry, and oh. you know what, uh, listeners out there, feel free to throw things at me at this point, I, because lots of people do, and they tell yeah. me that I'm missing the point, which I probably am, wow. but I just do not love it. And so we beat on boats against the current. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Into the past. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God! Really? All of the above. Uh, I, so yeah. So once I read that and abandoned that with glee, <laughs> I um I then became a person who's happy to abandon, and I do abandon with glee. Wow. But you know what I do? And here's another. <laughs> it's just while we're on true confessions mode. Yeah. I never abandon a book without reading the ending. Really. I'll just read the last couple of chapters to find out what happened and then I'll just move on. Really? I do. Yeah. Yeah, no, if I abandon, it is a it, – it's like, you know, you cut the cord and it's like going – otherwise, if you read the end, it's like going back to a ex-boyfriend or something. No, you just got to abandon. No, it's not at all. <laughs> no, it's like achieving closure before you move on Yeah, is what it is. Yeah. Anyway, oh. 
Let's go back to the post. Okay. It talks about the main reason that that people do abandon books. So here, here's the question for you. Okay. What stops you? Why do you go, I've had enough of you and put the book aside? The story's not going anywhere. If I've given it a good chunk, like I'm a third or if I'm halfway and the story's still not going anywhere, I'm abandoning for sure. Um, if I'm a third of the way through, I'll still push on if the writing is beautiful and I feel that maybe the story will go somewhere. And I did that to a book recently and the writing was so beautiful that actually kept me going. But at the end, I was a little bit disappointed because it didn't actually go anywhere. Right. <laughs> um, so, so you need a plot and you need some pace. Yeah, pretty much. Mm. I would say, how about you? Um, I think for me, it comes down to, well, again, it's, yes, I, I, I like a story. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel if I feel like I'm wading through words and I haven't actually got anywhere yet, I do. Yeah. I will give up at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly for me, it's a character thing. I, I have to feel invested. I, I really need to invest in a character very early. Mm. And if I haven't invested, if I feel the characters are flat or, you know, kind of two-dimensional or that's mm. the same as flat, isn't it? Anyway, mm. um, I, yeah, I won't go. I need to go with a character. I don't have to like the character, but I have to be invested on some level yes. in the character. Yeah, I don't mm. have to like the character either. I mm. often don't like the character. Mm. Um, yeah, okay. Well, we're both abandoners. Um, we're interested to know what you think, listeners. Are you yes. an abandoner or do you push through? Let us mm. know on social media. All right, let's move on to a link that you have about how to work alone. Is that right? Um, I believe so. I just have to remember what it was because <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, yes, how to work alone. Okay, so this is quite an interesting thing because I think that lots of people dream of being a, a writer and they dream of being a freelance writer um, in particular perhaps. And one of the things that they overlook, and I know several people who've done this, I actually know several high-profile journalists who have left magazines or whatever for a freelance career yes. and ended up going back yes, to I do work too, yes. on staff. And the reason for that is that they uh, found it very, very difficult to work alone yeah. because, you know, a magazine is very much a collaborative effort and it's a real team. It's it's like, you know, it's like footy for people in high heels mm-hmm. because it's like a, it's a real team effort and it's a bonding thing. And you, because you have monthly deadlines, it's almost like you, you know, you're in the game for that month and then everybody goes and has a drink and we all start again. It's that kind of stuff. Um, there's bonding, a lot of bonding. Yes. Um, and then if you go from that environment to suddenly working by yourself and having to motivate yourself and come up with all your own ideas and the discipline of actually sitting down every day and getting your work done without having a chat about lipstick and, you know, whatever's going on around you. Um, it's actually incredibly difficult. And so I thought this was quite an interesting um, little post called How to Work Alone. It was on uh, publicationcoach.com. And it was just about some of the basics of actually working alone. And I agreed with a lot of these things because these are things that I have learned over many, many years of of working by myself. Like I've been working by myself um, for probably, well, 14 or 15 years now, which is a long time. Um, And I think number one, the number one tip that they give in this particular post would be my number one tip as well, which is to give your day structure. Mm. 
And this is a hard-fought lesson, particularly when you first start freelancing, because you tend to just think, I've got so much time and I've just got this to do and I'll just go for a walk and I'll go and have a coffee and I'll go and do these things. And before you know it, it's like 10 o'clock at night and suddenly you've got to write your 2,000 words that are due the following day. Um, So it's actually, it is a really important thing, that routine. I mean, you know, as I think we've talked about before, my family laughs at me and my routines and my structures um, Mm. and the fact that I I have to do certain things at certain times and certain days. But it is the only way if you work by yourself. You have to get yourself into such a habit Mm. and such a routine um, that not only you understand your structure and your routine, but everyone else does as well because otherwise people keep popping in. They do. And they want to go for lunch and you're like, no, I can't go for lunch. So that was was one of the the most important ones. But you also work, um, you know, by yourself a a fair bit. What would be your number one tip? I agree with you that structure is really important. I I got used to working with myself quite easily because I'm an only child and I just was used to being alone a lot and um, that was really normal for me. But I totally agree about the structure and what you were saying about letting other people know about that structure because – When I first started freelancing, I used to have a particular friend who would just ring up and drop in for coffee all the time because she Mm. worked only a couple of streets away and, you know, she just thought that that was was something she could do. And in the end, I had to say, you can't just drop in like that because I'm in the middle of doing all of this stuff. And because it's not just a drop in for 15 minutes, it ends, you go up the road and it ends up two hours and, you know, much as I love her, it's something that, you know, needed to change and I needed to have that structure. I'm interested to know from you, after you pack your kids off to school and stuff, how do you structure the start of your day? What do you do to actually, you know, get into it? Do you do a particular thing? Yeah, I do the same thing every day. So I drop the kids. I go for a walk with the dog every day. Um, We sort of, you know, for 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, I get a coffee. I usually run into someone I know at that point. So at the the cafe. At the cafe, yeah, as part of the walk. So it's a very social walk that we have. So do you sit in the cafe and settle in the cafe? No, so, well, I have the dog with me. So um, we sometimes we will sit, there's a place we can go where we sit outside. So once a week I'll sit outside for half an hour and have a chat to some friends of mine that I know will be there. Um, so I do that probably on a Monday because it's a good way to start the week. But most of the time the dog and I go for a walk. We're back here by sort of quarter past nine-ish usually. Mm-hmm. And then I do social media and catch up on emails and things like that. And I basically aim to get started on whatever it is like I've actually sat down last night I've only got uh sort of a few more days now before the school holidays start so I sat down Mm -hmm. last night and I timetabled the rest of my week so I know what I'm doing at any given time on any given day so that I can make sure that I get things done that need to be done by sort of Friday night um so I start by about 10 doing whatever it is I'm going to do and I usually do about four or five, well, the boys don't really get home till three now because I don't actually have to collect anybody. Mm. So they're not home till just after three. So I work till three um, doing whatever it is I do. Yeah. Um, and I break for half an hour for lunch. Yeah, great. Wow, mm. that's that's structured. <laughs> well, you know, it's if you have only limited time, yeah, you have yeah. to make the most of that limited time. And, sure. you know, I have a whole lot of different things that need to be done in that limited time. So, yeah, you really have to be. But what about you? What's your morning look like? Um. I probably start off just sort of checking 
emails and things that have happened overnight and mm. then I definitely need my little cafe time but my cafe time is a planning time. So I sit there, I have my coffee or my tea, whatever I've decided to mm. have that day and I will use that period to write my to-do list and map out, I guess similar to you, what I need to achieve. I don't so much map it out the blocks of time Mm. Um, I do for major things that I know are going to take up chunks of time. But mm. it, I really find that planning time very useful. Mm. And, you know, recently I've um, – uh, this is, sounds silly, but I'll just tell you. <laughs> okay. So, so I write my to-do list and I write little checklist boxes so that I can, you know, tick them off and feel really great about it. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I started to do, you know how you meant to like eat – I mean not eat – Drink eight glasses of water. Eight glasses of water a day. Are you timetabling your water? No, but I draw the little checkbox. I draw eight little checkboxes. <laughs> okay, that's that's getting pretty serious about and your I routine and your structure. <laughs> I don't have to drink them at any particular points in time, as long as no. by the end of the day I've coloured them all in. I think that's like a nice little, you know, hack for making me drink my water. It's very good. But you know what I, I like the fact? So the, we, we actually do these things in complete reverse. So I do I do my my walk and my social because, you know, I, it's really important I think when you work by yourself to have at least five or ten minutes a day where you talk to someone else yes. that's not your kid and not your dog. Yeah. So I – I use I do that in the morning. I set myself up for the day by going, having my coffee, having a chat to whoever's around, even if it's just the barista and a hi, how you going kind of thing. Mm. And then I'm back because I do my planning before I go to bed. And I, I think we've talked about this before. So every night before I go to bed, mm, I write right. down what I need to do the following day and I email it to myself right. so that I can sleep because otherwise I'll be lying there all night thinking, oh, God, I've got to do that and I haven't done that and I forgot to write that down. And so yeah. I, I do it all before I go. I do all my planning the night before. Mm. Mm. Yes. So there well, you go. Interesting. Different approaches. Yes, different approaches. And um, now people know way too much about how we spend our time. <laughs> and how we, our <laughs> and how we drink our water. And how we drink our water. All right. Let's move on to an article that was in the Huffington Post uh, by Brooke Warner called How Not to Get Sued for Your Memoir. Oh. Now, I think this is pretty interesting because I tend I, – for some reason, people do send me their memoir manuscripts. And um, what one of the things that people do, which is interesting, is they don't necessarily want to identify somebody. So, they'll use their initial, <laughs> and it, which is very mm. hard to read, you know, mm. especially if there's the same initial used again. Um, so, one of the things this article says is, you know, change names and identifying details. So, obviously, uh, don't just use their initial, use a completely different name, or perhaps if it's not going to impact the story, a different gender maybe, or a different city or a different, you know, mm. place of birth or whatever. So I think that with memoirs, it's interesting because memoirs can be such a wonderfully cathartic and powerful experience for the writer, mm. uh, but they can also potentially um, – and they can be powerful and cathartic for other people who are in it and who read it, but they can potentially also cause problems and ructions and conflict when people are depicted in a way that they don't see themselves. Mm. So uh, there's it's a minefield. Depending well, on what it, it's an interesting about. one too because um, in our interview uh, later on in this episode, uh, I've interviewed Tony Tap 
uh, Coots, who has written a memoir, and her memoir is about her it's called A Sunburnt Childhood and it's about growing up in the Northern Territory on a massive cattle farm and she is the oldest of 10 children. So when she writes about her sunburnt childhood, it is also the childhood of nine other people who are emotionally invested. And so we had quite an interesting conversation about that because, um, you know, she, she even says, you know, you, you can't write the memoir you're supposed to write until you set yourself free from other people's expectations. Mm. But at the same time, you need to be aware of the fact that you are actually holding all of those expectations. Like all of those people are sitting on your shoulders while you're writing this, you know, the memoir. Um, So I spoke to her about the process of that because I, you know, I guess I think we've discussed this before, but memoir is probably not something I would ever write because I'm so aware that my story, which is actually not that interesting either, let's face it, um, so I would never write it for that reason, but my story is not just my story. It's the story that belongs to a whole range of other people. I think you have to really, really, as you say, it's quite cathartic, Mm -hmm. you have to really, really want to put whatever it is that you've got to get off your chest out there on the table. Yep. To, to go down that road, I, I feel. Um, yeah, but anyway, yeah, it's an inter- the article is quite an interesting one. I think the point about showing people what you've written before it comes out yeah. can be a very yeah. useful point, but you have Definitely. to be... Because then you avoid, you, they have that opportunity, you, you avoid, you know, um, any issues afterwards when it's mm. too late to change it. Mm, that's mm. right. Um, and I think um, Tony was quite... Uh, it, she, I mean, her her mother is uh, still alive and was part of the story, and so she had her read, you know, a lot of the important bits for dates and what actually mm. happened and things like that. So I guess getting some backup from someone else who was there might also help. Um, mm. What do you think? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I think one of the things that the article says, which can be useful is write what happened and edit out what needs to be removed later because then you're not self-censoring and you are experiencing that healing and powerful cathartic experience. So Mm. you're getting all of the benefits of that Mm. and and that's great. So just write it as if no one's going to read it really. Well, not as if no one's going to read it, you know what I mean? Um, Write the story that you want to write and then – come back to it, leave some time and yeah. come back to it and decide, you know, do I need to put that in or, you know, was just the act of writing about it good enough, enough yeah. for me? So, and I think the point point four that they make in this particular article too, which is get clear about what you stand to lose, oh, is yeah. probably very, very important. Mm. Like you can't, you can't just be like, well, this is my truth and I'm going to write what I want and then be surprised mm. if people are... Um, upset about it or not wanting to talk to you. I mean, Tony makes the point that whatever you write, you have to own. And I think that that's probably something that needs to be thought about very clearly when you're writing memoir. Yep. Absolutely. Mm. All right. So good article. We'll put the link in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Now, our next link uh, just made me think. It's in the Globe and Mail and it's an article about Jen Sukfong Lee who has written a couple of novels or a few novels and her latest is called The Con- Conjoined and begins with a woman finding two girls dead in the bottom of her recently deceased mother's basement freezer. I just thought that was interesting because she was inspired by an actual news story about a family (laughs) cleaning out their dead mother's house and they found two bodies in her freezers that turned out to be the foster children she had taken care of years earlier. 
Oh, my God. I found that quite intriguing. But that's and disturbing. Not, yeah, quite <laughs> disturbing. But that's not actually why I chose this. Um, okay. I'm this wondering where you're going with link. this. Yes. Um, Jen teaches uh, creative writing, teaches writing in Canada. And um, one of the things that she does is talk about um, writing sex scenes. And because she teaches a sex writing workshop. (laughs) And she says, it's easily the most fun I've ever had in a class for obvious and vaguely juvenile reasons. But also because writing intimacy scares the pants off most new writers and it really shouldn't. And she says, I will say that there are no good words for certain body parts, none. So, Which is quite true. As somebody who has been experienced in writing such things, did you also find that it was hard to come up with variety in description and also whether there were any no good words for certain body parts. No, that's very true. Um, I do I do think that that's the case and actually like it, it's the kind of thing that stops you as you're writing um, the scenes and things like that. Mm. But what I also found and I think that this advice was l- last reiterated in our conversation with Alan Baxter mm. about fight scenes Um which is quite an interesting thing. We had a very good conversation recently about fight scenes and writing those and the similarity between those and sex scenes because at the end of the day, the slot A into tab B kind of description of, of, um, of a sex scene is really unattractive. So <laughs> the best way I found to, to get through it was to avoid naming body parts mm-hmm. and to write through the emotion and the feeling because what you're trying to do is put the reader there not actually describe what's happening. And it's very similar to a fight scene. And if you haven't listened to that conversation with Alan Baxter, it is well worth a listen. Um, So I I guess that's probably because it is very, very difficult to come up with the right word. And the best thing that you can possibly do is to have a look at the convention at the time in whatever, like whatever section of because obviously, you know, love scenes, sex scenes, whatever, appear in a whole range of different types of, of stories. Yes. And so the best way to work out what word to use is to look at other stories in that particular, you know, genre, whether you're mm. writing a sex scene in a crime thriller or a sex scene in a romance or a sex scene in a, you know, commercial women's fiction or whatever it is you're doing and look at the, the language conventions at the time mm. because they change. And they change yeah. from genre to genre and they change from almost, you know, book to book in a, in a way and year to year. So it's really worth, if you're, if you're writing this kind of stuff, you need to be very much aware mm. of what words people are using right now. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Great advice. There you go. There I you didn't go. even know you were going to throw that at me. So look <laughs> at me talking off the top of my head. <laughs> well done, Al. All right. Let's move on to this week's giveaway. This is your last chance to grab a. F- uh, I don't. I don't know why. I just stopped then. <laughs> I don't <laughs> to know why grab that either. A pack of two books, including. Figgy in the World and the sequel Figgy and the President by Tamsin Janu. We're very excited about this because Figgy and the President has just been released and the first book, Figgy in the World, won and was shortlisted for like every other award under the sun last year. Mm-hmm. And Tamsin is an awesome graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre and she was in actually day two of her course when she thought of the story that became Figgy 
in the World, the award-winning book. So entries close on Monday, the 26th of September, and you need to go to writerscentercomau slash win in order to enter. So good luck. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash creative writing. All right, Ella, you ready for the word of the week? So ready. So ready. Couldn't be more ready. (laughs) It is ineffable. Ineffable, I-N-E-F-F for Fred, A-B-L-E, ineffable. Mm. Do you ever use that? I do, Val. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it's, uh, ineffable to me is actually not one of your weirder words at all. I think oh. it's a great word. Okay. It anyway. sounds like something to do with, you know, it kind of sounds like, like it might be a bit rude, but it's not. So the Macquarie Dictionary says this means something that cannot be uttered or expressed, inexpressible or unspeakable. So the example they give is ineffable joy. Now, Mm. this word is often associated with God in that it's too great or massive or huge to be explained in words. So you might experience ineffable relief when your daughter returns home after being kidnapped or something like that. So they're ineffable. Do you really use it often? Oh, I wouldn't say often, but I use it. Okay. I write a lot of stuff. Yeah, you do. You do. So, you know, I, I try to use – I mean, it's, it's like when I talk to kids and I do my uh, writing workshops and things, I always say to them that you you want to use the best word you know yes. for any given you know, circumstance. So it may not be the most complicated word, but it has to be the best one that you know. And ineffable is a very, very good word. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't right. you agree? Mm. Yeah, I would. Okay. okay. Fantastic. Ineffable. So if you're going to be using it, using the word of the week in your blog posts this week, make sure you ping us on social media so that we can have a look. Mm. All right. So who is our writer in residence this week, Al? Well, our writer-in-residence, as previously discussed, is um, the author Tony Tapcoots, and she has written a memoir called A Sunburnt Childhood and is currently working on the sequel to that memoir, um, which will – so A Sunburnt Childhood is published by Ashet Australia and the sequel will also be published. It's um, selling incredibly well and doing extremely well and it's an amazing story and I'm pretty sure that's why it's selling incredibly well. So we had a good chat about memoir, uh, as I said, about sort of holding the expectations of an entire family when you're writing about the childhood Um, and it was really really interesting Tony Tapcoots is a writer and photographer who lives in remote northern Australia. She's also a local counsellor and breast cancer survivor. Her first memoir, A Sunburnt Childhood, was published in April 2016 by Ashet Australia and welcome to the program Tony. 
Thank you so much. All right, so let's start by, how about you tell us how your memoir, A Sunburnt Childhood, came to be published? Al, my sunburnt childhood was every writer's dream. I submitted, I entered at the Northern Territory Writers Festival two years ago. They ran a project called 15 by 15 by 15. Okay. And the invitation was for 15 writers to submit 15 pages of their manuscript and get a 15-minute interview with a literary agent. So I did that and that's where I met Sophie Hamley. So you entered your 15 pages in that and you were chosen to be one of the 15 um, featured manuscripts, so to speak. Okay, and so through that you met literary agent Sophie Hamley, is that correct? Yes. 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 And what happened from there? Um, She asked me had I ever submitted it to any other publishers. I said no. She said why not and I said I didn't think people would really be interested other than Territorians. I I had been sort of writing it more for a Territory audience I guess. And um, anyway, she was very interested and uh, it was quite a long wait and I wasn't game to phone her because you sort of think, you know, <laughs> do I ask or don't I ask? And, and quite a few months went by. And then when I did call her, which she had said to me, ring me if you don't hear from me in four to six months. And she said that she had left uh, that job and was taking up the uh, non-fiction publishing position at Ashet Australia and would I mind if she took my manuscript with me and I was Mm. thinking like I'm going to say no. (laughs) (laughs) I said, of course, I'd love to love you to take it. And um, time went by and I didn't know the process at that stage and then I spoke to her in January and she said to me that she was taking it to acquisitions and um, she explained what acquisitions was and she said, I'll call you in a couple of weeks' time. And she did, and she said, you're in. Wow, how exciting. We've to offer you a contract. <gasps> it was so exciting. So at that stage of proceedings, like how long had you been working on the memoir? Like what sort of, like what kind of drafting process had you been through, you know, to get it to a point where you were happy to send 15 or, give, you know, show 15 pages of it to an agent? I had been writing it for 14 years. Okay. <laughs> so- <laughs> It started out as a short story that I entered into the Northern Territory Literary Awards right. and in 2002 and the judge was Nicholas Jose, um, a South Australian writer and he, it just got shortlisted but I was speaking to him after at the function and he said to me, oh, this is a really amazing story. Is this your story? Um, basically, is it not made up? And I said, yes, it is my story and he said, these stories are just so important, you really need to be writing them. So time has gone on. I've been a member of our local Catherine region of writers called Crow for about 25 years and I've been a member of the Northern Territory Writers Centre for about 15 years or so. So I always took advantage of the workshops, always attend attend all the um, writers' festivals in the top end, which is one every two years. <laughs> and um, but the Writers Centre offer a lot of um, skills development writing workshops all throughout the year, throughout the territory. 
and I sort of plugged away at just um, writing and writing in between my life as, you know, a mum, a small business owner and counsellor and all those things. All right. So once you actually got like it went to acquisitions and, and it's, you know, you just sort of began this process to publication, which, you know, as you say, was kind of a fairy tale journey, but 14 years in the making in many ways because you've been working on your story for a long time. Was there anything that actually surprised you about the publishing process? Like were you prepared for what needed to be done from that point onwards? No, of course not. I had already done about fifty to 60,000 words. Yeah. And, and Sophie had said to me, you know, just get it over 60,000 words um, and we'll work on it from there. And she was just amazing, uh, the whole process. Right. Um, so you worked very closely with her, at, you know, a step, as a, each step through the publishing process? Yes. It was very um, – a great working relationship and I learned about structure, structural edits and copyright ed, copy editors and all, all those words, <laughs> <laughs> which is just amazing. And, um, yeah, it, it was really, really good. It was, it was easy because, um, well, even Sophie complimented me to say that, you know, it was already quite reasonably well written. Yeah. But it did need quite a bit of structural editing because I'd written it over such a long time and I was repeating things and, you know, yeah. getting out of timelines where a fresh eye would see yeah. uh, all of that. So, um, yeah, it's fairly painless. Oh, that's excellent. That's a that's an excellent working relationship. And I think um, to have that working relationship, you need – there needs to be a lot of trust, don't you think, that the – that you – working with an editor who really gets what you're trying to do and gets what your story is. Do you feel that that's the case? Absolutely. And um, Sophie put a lot lot of time into me and she came up to the Territory and came to Catherine um, and spent a few days with me and, you know, we did the big tour up to the Catherine Gorge, you know. Yeah. And it's pretty spectacular landscape that we live in. It's Mm. harsh and it's hard and it's hot and it's dry. And it's also very wet, but it's. I really wanted to make sure that I. That you got a sense of the landscape I live in. Yeah. And well, it's so, an important part of the that place. That sense of place is such an essential part of the book, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think um, when you have an editor like I had have with Sophie, she drew those extra bits out of me. The mm. things that I saw when when I spoke to her about it, she'd say. You need to put that in there. Right. <laughs> you need to put, I can see how much you love the landscape and that you've got to put that in there and tell us that. Okay. So the book, this this memoir covers your childhood and it's a very interesting story. You grew up on Kalani, which is a massive cattle property, um, 600 kilometres southwest of Darwin, which is pretty much the middle of nowhere from what I can gather. Um, so yep. there's no running water. You're sleeping in um, under the stars in swags. Like When you're sort of living this, you're not thinking, I'm totally going to write this down at some point. So at what point did you sort of, was it just that short story experience that made you think that you had a story worth writing about or had you always thought, I need to write this at some point? I think I always knew that I would have to write it at some point because I am the eldest of 10 children and Mm. I I was always a prolific letter writer when I was at boarding school and my mum was a prolific letter writer so I always loved writing and I was on the school magazine committee and 
uh, things like that. And over the years, even living out bush, I used to run a little newsletter for the Isolated Children's Parents Association. So I always like writing. Um, but one of the driving forces behind it is I wanted to honour those Aboriginal people and all those stockmen that I grew up with. Mm. You know, many of them are now buried in unmarked graves on cattle stations throughout the region. Mm. Um, they don't maybe mean anything to anybody really because no one knows anything. But to me they were really amazing people. Mm. So I wanted to tell that story about those Aboriginal people and my old Aboriginal mother and aunties and, the, yeah, the stockmen and the crazy cooks and the alcoholic um, bore mechanics and, and on top of that, of course, my pretty crazy family. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the things that I wanted to, to talk to you about because, you know, as you say, like you, it's a very personal story, what you're writing, it's your childhood growing up on the cattle station, et cetera. But it's also a story that belongs to a lot of other people, isn't it? Like you are the oldest of 10, so there are a lot of other people who shared that childhood in a way and I'd imagine had thoughts on the book. I mean, did you? is it difficult to be the keeper of a story that belongs to so many people? Like not yes. just your own family but also, as you say, the stockmen and the people that worked, you know, on the station and all that sort of stuff? Yes, and that was a struggle for a long time, Al. It was... Um I, I couldn't find my voice for such a long time, which is why I was tending to write it in uh, a step back as short stories, I think, and not mm. putting myself so much into it. And um, I, once I realised it could only be my story, someone said to me, I think I went to Patty Miller workshop or something. And oh, said, yeah, she's amazing. She's amazing. And um, I got a, a message from her after my book came out to say how thrilled she was, oh, which was lovely. Um, it was in one of her workshops when we were discussing the voice and I was saying I've got so many stories and so many people to consider and I just don't know how to do it. And when, it, when she said it can only be your story, it all fell into place because then I realised, and we said, I can't write my mother's story, I can't write my father's story. He was an alcoholic and drank all the cattle stations, in three cattle stations into a $14 million debt. But, <laughs> right. um, but, so, but I could tell it from my perspective. Right. And um, once I got through that, yeah, I, I was able to start to develop my own voice. Do you think that's the most difficult aspect of writing memoir, is that notion of having so many people sort of sitting on your shoulder the whole way through? Yes, and in the end I also decided through that process that um, I would just have to take whatever came to me, that I wanted to write the book um, and I didn't show it to anybody. My mum re read um, various bits of the drafts and she was wonderful. She's 80 years of age and still lives in Catherine. So I was allowed, able to check on a lot of facts and things with her and oh, times, and, which is pretty lucky. Yeah. Um, so that was really good. But, yeah, in the end I thought I just have to own it. Otherwise it's never going to get out there. So it takes a lot of courage to do that, doesn't it? Like I think you kind of if you – are really serious about publishing a memoir, you do have to be aware of that, don't you, that you, you do have to own it. It's your story, you own it, and you also own whatever comes with the putting of it out into the public. 
Yes, yeah. Mm. And were there any dramas? Like did you have any problems with that or was, was it essentially a well-received by all nine siblings kind of event? Yeah, well, interestingly, I've got six brothers and I don't think any of them have read it, but there was. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about go, right. Oh, we're not readers, yeah, we don't yeah. read. Um, but my sister-in-laws and that, most of them have said, oh, it's just absolutely fantastic and, you know, um, I've read bits out to Ben or Joe or whoever and, um, yeah, and my mum says she loves going to Woolworths shopping because she's now um, the mother of a famous writer. <laughs> Fantastic. So when you actually sat down to write the book, when you started writing it, um, did you did you sort of pick a starting spot and go forward from there or did you have bits and pieces that you'd written like fragments of memories and stories and anecdotes and then you had to try and weave those into some kind of narrative? Yes, I did. I wrote um, little pockets of stories and, and then started to uh, – actually through my writers group when I – uh, enlisted a couple of my friends to to try and critique it a little bit, and they were saying you you you're still writing too much in a short story mode. Um, you know you've got to make it flow a bit better. So that was really good good support that I had through then. Mm. And is, that's important. Do you think that support from from other writers as you're sort of going through that process? Oh, absolutely, because it's really scary, as you know, to offer people your, yes. <laughs> your writing and bear your soul. Um, and, it, yeah, it takes a bit of courage to do that as well, <laughs> I think. Um, yes, it does. And because I live in such an isolated area, I mean, our writing group is, is our support group. So we really try, um, and a few of us are quite experienced now, yep. to be very fair. We only critique fairly. We don't... Of course, you can't, you know, make any personal complaint, personal observations, and just hope that you're helping each other move along. Mm. And is that the? the I mean, because you know, writers' groups are different, have different um, uh, sort of benefits and rules and different things like that as they go. But yours is obviously quite established. So, is that is it mostly to keep the forward momentum of the projects that you you guys are aiming at, or is um, I mean, do you did you sort of set rules out, or how does how does a writers' group work for you? We're a hobby group uh, only, like we're not a proper incorporated body or anything like that. Yeah. We've actually written seven anthologies over the last 20 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and my, I tend to do the covers and a bit of the layout and stuff and we self-publish on um, lulu.com. Oh, okay, cool. And the whole philosophy for ours is um, – to finish stuff and by doing the anthologies it's like you finish stuff you put that away or, or take it on to the next step if you want and it gives everyone an opportunity to um, put their stuff out there mm. and make progress make progress and we mm. we have um, friends writer friends in darwin you know well-published writers who often do proofing and a bit of grammar checking for us and stuff like that so we have really good support excellent all right, as you say, you live in Catherine, Northern Territory, which incidentally is also where I spent part of my sunburnt childhood, so I find it quite fascinating. But do you think that writers in isolated areas like Catherine or even the Northern Territory in general, as you say, there's a writers' festival every two years um, and you've either got to fly into state for other things or, or not, do you think that they face particular challenges of their own? And, and if that's the case, like what, what do you do to overcome them? 
Yeah, well, I think it is a challenge. And when you don't get much exposure and the ability to to um, mix with other writers at the level that you're at, maybe. Yeah. Uh, in, you know, in our group, we've got a couple of fabulous poets. Um, one of our writers, a doctor here in town, has won the um, Short Fiction NT Literary Award three times. Mm. So, you know, we have really good writers, but, yeah, you, you still need that exposure. You need to be able to go and talk to people, uh, go to those workshops and panels and things, I think, and yeah. listen about what people are doing. And is that a matter of you having to actually just, like, make the time to go? Like, do you have to fly interstate every once in a while just to, you know, go to a festival or, or um, you know, or whatever's on? Yeah, well, I haven't. I've been – I always go to the one in Darwin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Wordstorm. Oh, and yeah. It, you know, I think being such a small festival, I mean, I've met Germaine Greer and Christos Cholkas, or however you say his name. Yeah. Um, I was on a panel with Magda Zabanski early this year. Wow, what fun. Uh, yeah, talking memoir. Yeah. And, and, of course, she's gorgeous. She is what she is. What you see is what you get. Yeah. Um, but, again, then you get that exposure, you know, with someone like Magda who uh, tells you her story of how – of writing – this book and how she blew, she said she wrote almost 250,000 words initially because she just had to keep blurting it out and she'd done all the research and been back to Poland, etc., etc. And then how it comes back down to being a memoir, memoir I think, of about 100,000 words. Mm. And, and you want to hear that. You want to hear that whether you're Magda Zabanski or whoever you are. Yeah. It's a lot of work yeah. and you can't give up. Okay. And you've also, I think, spent time at Varuna, which is the writer's house in Katoomba in New South Wales, while you were writing the memoir at some stage in that proceeding. Is that correct? Yes. And I'd, I'd submitted a couple of those short stories, uh, which are now all in the book. And um, Peter Bishop was amazing in his support. Mm. And how important is, is an experience like that, like to be able to immerse yourself and spend time in an environment like that? How important is that for someone who writes, you know, essentially in isolation? Oh, it's, it's just so important. And it's sometimes really good just to get out of your home and your routine. I think that's the best thing about it. Mm. And, and, and at Varuna, there are only six of us. And um, to have that evening where you're talking to writers, poets, essay you know memoir and and yeah just pick up all that really good support good vibes good um it's very energizing isn't it spending time yes yeah yes yeah all right so you have a busy life as you said you've got a small business you're a counselor you've got a family you've got all these sort of things going on when do you fit the writing in how do you make time for it i initially well, I'd been faffing around for 14 years, so I had <laughs> But you were still doing it, weren't you? <laughs> and so when um, I got the contract with Ashette, I then had to obviously work a little bit faster. So I dedicated every Sunday I would get up in the morning in my pyjamas and drink endless cups of coffee <laughs> and virtually just write at least through till lunchtime and often mid-afternoon and then I'd have a glass of wine, usually have a shower <laughs> and put some other clothes Glad on. Glad you were fitting that in as well. Excellent. <laughs> and um, 
I dedicated Sundays to that and, and people got to know not to come by because I was working full time. But since I've got the second contract, I've given up work. Um, oh, right. Okay. But I still have my councillor duties and I'm on the Northern Territory Writers Centre board and I'm on the Catherine Museum board and I'm on all sorts of things. So, right. so I still busy. lead a busy life. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that leads me to my next question. You, what are you currently working on? Because you, you, as you said, you do have a second contract. So what's what are you actually – what are you writing at the moment? So this is more or less a follow-up. A Sunburnt Childhood is very much about my childhood, uh, though it does have a couple of chapters saying what happened to the family mm. after um, all these things happened. And so the next one is more my adult life uh, of getting married and then going to live on a cattle station, MacArthur River Cattle Station, which mm. is down in the Gulf of Borroloola. And that was a whole different life to what I grew up in. Um, the country I grew up on was um, dry and sparse and there were no big rivers. And moving down to the Gulf Country, there's massive big rivers and crocodiles and barramundi mm. and buffaloes and all the things that I didn't grow up with. And a whole suite of um, another amazing characters and interesting stories and survival and all those sorts of things. Gosh, well, it sounds like a good read, so I'll be looking forward to that one. <laughs> and in the meantime, so what what are you? What sorts of things are you doing to promote your books? Like that was, I guess that's another. Um, it can be another difficulty if you're, you know, outside. You can't just pop along to a library talk in a different Sydney suburb every week, can you? So, what do you? How do you promote your books? Um, from Catherine, what are you doing? Are you active on social media or? I'm, I'm really prolific on social media and always have been. Okay. So what, what uh, are your favourite platforms? Particularly Facebook. But yep. once um, I started out on this book, uh, I did Twitter, which is where I picked up all your stuff and the Australian Writers <laughs> Centre, See, it works, doesn't it? <laughs> it works. It works. And, and um, um, so I made the Facebook page before Tony Tapcoot's author. I paid for those boost posts. Yep. Um, I then got my website done and I'm sure that my Facebook has been incredible. Just the feedback I get, I know it sells lots of books. Yeah, you're seeing, and you're seeing the conversations on Facebook, I guess, because that's the thing with Facebook. You, The conversations tend to hang around longer, whereas Twitter is so quick, isn't it? You sort of like... Um, you know, blink and you miss the whole thing. But are you, are you sort of like it? Obviously, sounds like something that you quite enjoy. You don't find it a difficulty to do um, no, social media. No, I think it's really important. And actually, one of the f first podcasts of yours that I heard was um, with the guy from Booktopia. What's his name? John Purcell. John Purcell. That was and such a good interview, and I think anyone who hasn't listened to that particular episode should have a listen to it because he had so many good things to say, didn't he? It was amazing and, and how he talked about, um, you know, th that you've got to um, get out there and sell books yourself as well. Yeah. If you're an author and you want to be out there, yeah. you have to – well, you don't have to. That's your choice, as he said. But yeah. it is better if you are on Facebook and Instagram and all those things. Yeah. And so you've taken all that on board and you're you're running with it basically. Yeah, absolutely. Go, Tony. <laughs> All right. Um, well, we'll finish up our interview today with um, our, you know, famous top three tips. Um, and so I guess my question to you would be your top three tips for anyone considering writing a memoir. Okay. Other than the, you know, write, write, write and don't stop writing because yes. you can't edit an empty page. Yes. Um, for me, 
quite a bit of research as in just going through photos and jogging my memory because I'm a fairly prolific photo taker. Okay. I've also kept um, lots and lots of paper clippings because my mother does it. She's a bit of a hoarder. So I've in, And um, I've got all these arch lever files dating back now to 1996 and I just throw in anything in there of interest. Um, my family's quite well known so they're often in the media and so there's lots of paper clippings and stuff like that. Okay. But also for this particular book, I've kept a lot of stuff on on my council works. So um, talking to people, yeah. uh, which I have the ability, of course, to do as well with my mother here and, and my big family. Yeah. Um, so so that you, you're interviewing really the resources that are available to you basically, you yeah. know, to help sort of fill in any gaps that, of, you know, dates or exact times or anything like that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So keep records, I guess, is one thing. Talk to the yeah, people around you is another. Notes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think I, I um, have a couple of books and, and it's only in those books that I write bits of stuff if my mother says to me um, whatever, starts to tell me a little story. I might only put down six little dot points, but at least then it jogs my memory. Okay. And yep. with regards to finding your voice, which you said was one of the most difficult things to actually do, how did you, beyond the idea of actually remembering that it's your story that you're telling and not everyone else's story, it's actually yours, how did you drill down into that voice that is only Tony's and not the short story writing voice? Um, a lot of coaxing from Sophie. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who pushed me over the edge and kept saying to me, you know, you're a great storyteller when you tell stories. Right. You now need to put that story, tell it that way. Right. So use the voice. Uh, yeah. Use put your, your put voice. Put your personality in it. Use your voice. Yeah. Because yes. uh, I think that that's a mistake a lot of people make is when they sit down to write something, they think that they need to you know, be a writer with a capital W and that somehow that that is a different um, form of expression to how they would actually just tell the story. Whereas in many cases, the tapping into your own voice is that notion of um, writing the way you speak, but but better, obviously, because you're going to, you know, punctuate it properly and you're not going to do ums and ahs and all those sorts of things. Would you agree with that? Absolutely spot on. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much for your time today. Um, Your uh, fabulous memoir, A Sunburnt Childhood, is, of course, available now, and you're working on the second one, which we're all waiting for. And um, we will look forward to seeing you around the social media traps. And uh, what is your Facebook page? Is it Tony Tapcoots? Tony Tapcoots is my personal and my Tony Tapcoots author. Tapcoots author. Okay. And what are Um, you on Twitter? What's your Twitter Twitter handle? My Twitter is... Lady Bat 7. Lady Bat 7? That's yeah. unusual. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't have found that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We'll put those uh, details in the show notes for anyone who would uh, like to connect with you on social media. And thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for the opportunity. It's wonderful. Wow. I think it's very brave to write a memoir. I don't know whether I have the guts to do it myself. Well, I certainly don't. And I also, as I said, I don't know that my stories, you know, I think you've got to have belief that your story is pretty amazing. And Tony's is because of the various, you know, aspects of her life. Like just 
living on an isolated cattle station yes. like that, like 640 kilometres wow. southwest or southeast or wherever it is from Darwin, mm. like middle of nowhere in the Northern Territory, um, with your family and living so in a shed and sleeping in a swag mm. and, you know, all of the various things that happen, all of that stuff would be enough without all the other things that go on as well. So um, I think you have to, yeah, a, a big story is a is a wonderful thing, particularly if you've lived it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. All right, let's move on to our platform building tip for this week. Now, you have a uh, link for us. Is I that do right? about how I... to be how to interview a writer and how to be interviewed. Yeah, no, this, uh, so this link was on aerogramstudio.com, which is a fantastic resource for writers if you haven't discovered it as yet, aerogramstudio.com. Um, they, they have a lot of news and a lot of different things on there. Um, this particular post was called How to Interview a Writer and How to Be Interviewed. And the reason it caught my attention was because it's something that we do cover in the platform building um, course. Mm-hmm. I think it's really, really important. And I guess it's something that you and I have probably – Um, picked up a lot of tips from over the years, not only because we interview writers regularly, Mm. um, but also because we are both actually interviewed regularly. So Mm. um, it's an unusual position to be in, in many ways for most writers, because most writers would be interviewed, but not necessarily be interviewing other people um, or vice versa. So uh, the, um, the, this particular thing, uh, post Yes. yes. Sorry. <laughs> Having a massive synapse right there. Um, is is all about some tips for like if, you, if you're asked to chair a panel at a writer's uh, festival or something like that, and I know that the first time, I remember the first time I was asked to do that, I freaked out completely, even <laughs> though I'm quite used to interviewing people. Yes. <laughs> but there was something about, you know, being the chair with yeah. capital C that really, um, that really freaked me out. But, of course, all the tips remain the same whether you're going to interview someone for anything, for, you know, radio, for for a um, for a story, for anything. You know, you need to be prepared, I think, would be the first possible yes. um, first possible tip. Um, you have to be prepared not only for – with questions to ask your, your people, you need to be prepared for the fact that things might go wrong, mm. that you might end up with an author who gets stage fright and – doesn't have a lot to say and then you have to think about how you're going to fill those gaps in and all of those sorts of things. So being prepared is really, really important. Um, but it, it's kind of like it goes both ways because if you're being interviewed for a program mm-hmm. or for an article, you also need to be prepared. Yes. And <laughs> you- can I just say one of the most important things to be prepared about is to answer the question, what is your book about? Yes, and be prepared succinctly. Be pre- yeah, exactly. Be prepared to do it in one or two lines, mm. as opposed to starting. Well, there's a girl, mm. and she gets on a train, mm. and she's <laughs> on her way to work. Um, mm. Because this is, and, and I'm, you know, obviously I'm exaggerating, but this is kind of sometimes mm. the kind. You, know, you say, "What's your book about?" Or the other thing is, you say, "What's your book about?" And they say, "It's about parenting." <laughs> well, no. <laughs> yes. I actually want you to tell me the story so that yeah. I, I can get an idea about whether I want to read it or something like that. So don't give me the theme. Tell yeah. me what the story is and give it to me in one or two sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you? What's like? What's your number one tip for authors or writers who are going to be interviewed? 
going to, well, the number one is definitely know what your book is about and be able to say it in one or two sentences. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, you, you got have to remember that the reader or the listener or the audience member may or may not have read your book. So mm. you, and that actually goes for the interviewer as well. So you need to be helpful to an audience who may or may not have read your book. So you can't just make an assumption that they've read it and then make reference to things in it thinking that they know, oh yeah, and you know what happens to John in chapter three. Well, you mm. can't say that. You actually mm -hmm. need to always bear in mind, in fact, in fact, ideally, you probably want a situation where most of the audience or listenership haven't read your book because this is your opportunity to interest them in it mm. and to um, hopefully encourage them to buy it. So I think that also related to that is when the interviewer, uh, interviewer and the interviewee, say at a festival, have – um, inside joke kind of banter that mm. the audience isn't privy to because maybe they haven't read the book um, or, or don't know the background. I think it's okay to make reference to the book or make reference to the background of the writer, but then explain it to the audience. I think that's really, really important so that the audience really gets a full picture. And the best interviewers are aware of that. And the best interviewers will fill in the blanks for the audience mm -hmm. because the interviewee you know, isn't necessarily thinking about that because they're trying to answer your question. That's right. And mm. so I've got, I've got one other tip as well, and, and it, it works from both sides of mm. the platform. So if you are an interviewer, don't ask questions that can be answered with a yes or no. Mm. Think about wording your questions so that you actually are going to get more than a yes or no. And then conversely, if you are the interviewee, don't answer questions with a yes or no. Like yes. Obviously, you're, <laughs> the interviewer is attempting to have a conversation. with. If, if you're in a writing panel or, or you know, in, a co in conversation or something at a festival, you're trying to have a conversation and if you stop it with a yes or no, it's going to make everything awkward. And the same with, you know, if you're being interviewed for a story or, or you know, for radio or something like that, you need to try and wax a little bit lyrical, not too much, but you need to get beyond a yes or no answer um, because otherwise it just, you know, you're not giving the interviewer anything to work with and then your story is going to be incredibly dull. So think about it from that perspective. Um, but the yes or no from both sides needs to be avoided if at all possible. Yeah. And an effective interview is something that's going to inspire audiences or listeners or readers and, like I said, encourage them to get to know you and, and your work and your book. So very, very important, very important to take it seriously and yeah, to think and about if, it. Well, yeah. And I, like it, I always – I look at it from both sides. So if I'm doing – if I'm being the interviewer, I put an awful lot of thought into those questions. Like I think every successful interview comes from asking the right questions yeah. because I think that, you know, you don't want to just ask the stock standard list of 12, you know, that you mm. every, that, that every single person asks because you're going to get stock standard answers if you Absolutely. do that. You've got to try and think of a couple of questions that are going to really bring your subject alive and that's what that, those questions are the zingers and you will always know when you've asked them yes, because the person know, will you? spark up and you yep. get this sudden burst of enthusiasm. So think yep. about those questions really, really carefully. And on the other side of the equation, think about your answers. Now there are all, you're always going to be asked 
you know, no matter how clever your interviewer is, <laughs> there's always going to be some that are the same. So you are going to be asked, where do you get your ideas from? I don't care where you go. I don't <laughs> care how old your interviewer is, whether they be six or whether they be 75, you are yep. going to be asked where your ideas come from or yep. where you got the inspiration for your book. Have an answer. Yes. Think about the answer and be ready to give some variation on that answer. Not exactly the same every time, but some variation on that answer every time. You're going to be asked who your favourite author is. It doesn't matter, again, how old the person is that's asking (laughs) you. You'll ask who your favourite author is. You'll be asked what your favourite books are. And those are the kinds of questions that they sound so obvious. But when I was first being interviewed as an author, I found those questions really hard because I don't have a favourite anything. I'm one of those people that I yep. I have a list of favourites and I love a whole range of different things. But you need to be able to answer that question in a fairly succinct way. And so yep. what you need to think about is who's your audience? So I'm not going to go into a, a, a kind of a question and answer session with a bunch of 10-year-olds and tell them that my favourite book of all time is, you know, I don't know, Gone with the Wind. I'm going <laughs> to go in and tell them that it's you know, famous five or something like that. Think about your audience. Both of those answers are correct for different audiences. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, great advice. And of course, other great advice like this from Alison is in the course, How to Build Your Author Platform, which Mm. has been created by Alison and designed to help you build your author platform with a step-by-step series of actions that you can take. And you can find out more about that at writerscentre.com.au slash platform. All right, so we're almost at the end of our episode. Al, what are you doing in the coming days? Well, as you know, my time is very strictly timetabled and I have a very strict plan of what I'll be doing. I have to get some structural edit done. Uh, before Mm. the school holidays start because I have a deadline for that, which is after the school holidays, but not much will happen in the school holidays on a structural edit. Um, And then I have several other jobs that need to be uh, completed by Friday afternoon, so I'll be working on that. But I also have a question, if I might, for our our, – or a little favour, actually, for our listeners out there. Um, As you know, the Mapmaker Chronicles is coming out in the US next year. And I know, it's very exciting. And I just wanted to ask our listeners, um, anyone who might have read any of the Mapmaker Chronicles series, if they would mind taking five minutes at some point to pop a review on Goodreads or on Amazon for me, Um, simply for the fact that Obviously, when a book comes out in a new territory, people start looking for reviews and things like that. And um, the more that I have um, in place by the time that particular uh, series comes out in the US, then I think the better it will be for me. So if anybody does have five minutes to do that, I would be most appreciative. Awesome. A review on Goodreads or Amazon, or Amazon for the Mapmaker yeah. Chronicles. Fantastic. Yes, that would be great. Thank Go you. Go do it, everyone. Awesome, awesome, awesome series of books. And you, Val, what are you doing this week? What am I doing? Well, oh, you're gosh. busy. Thinking about it is making my adrenaline rise as we speak. So maybe oh no, I should just. But you were go so calm. You were breathing. Pepper. I know you have that calming effect. I think it's your voice or something that makes me feel a little bit more peaceful. <laughs> putting so, you to sleep. You no, mean. no, no. Soporific so, is what the word is. Oh no, word your voice week. is not soporific. <laughs> I I know that word. I like that word. <laughs> um, I do listen to some audiobooks that are soporific, and oh. they're, yeah, they're no good. Uh, but anyway. I um, yeah, probably need to take a Valium and calm down. Okay. And uh, hopefully next time we chat, I will not be talking like a chipmunk. 
No, you won't, Val. You'll be oh. so calm. You'll be practically horizontal. <laughs> All right. Uh, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm uh, Valerie Koo in Sydney. Just search that for Facebook. And, uh, yeah, connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. Mm, and until good. next week, have a wonderful week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.